Thanks for downloading this episode of Backstory about the role of sports in higher education. If you like the show, check out BackstoryRadio.org for more episodes. This episode of Backstory was originally broadcast in 2012. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Ballow, 20th Century Guy. I'm Ed Ayers, 19th Century Guy. And I'm Peter Onuf, 18th Century Guy. Okay, guys, it's finally here, March Madness, weeks of wall-to-wall college basketball coverage. I can't get enough of it. Ah, yeah. March Madness is America's second largest sporting event in terms of income, second only to the Super Bowl. And anytime you get that much money and that much hype around college sports, people seem to start looking for the next big controversy. Documents from an ongoing federal probe into bribery and fraud allege a shadow world involving big money, secret deals, and marquee names from the world of college basketball. The picture painted by the charges brought today is not a pretty one. Coaches at some of the nation's top programs soliciting and accepting cash bribes. This morning, NCAA President Mark Emmert released a statement in response to the Yahoo report, saying in part, these allegations, if true, point to systematic failures that must be fixed and fixed now if we want college sports. And as much as this seems like a current day problem, and it is, questions about the role of sports at universities have been around a long time. We talked with reporter Ramona Martinez about one of the most drastic decisions in college sports history. It took place at the University of Chicago. And I should also say with full disclosure that I am an alum of University of Chicago, and therefore this history has a special place in my heart, which is why I was interested in the story originally. Um, well, so your, yes. your account will have an asterisk after it. So, thanks for revealing that. Ramona says that in the 1890s, football was exploding across the country's colleges. Harvard had a new team, Yale had a new team, but Chicago was a little behind the curve. The president of the university, William Rainey Harper, decided that they needed to get on this football bandwagon. So he hires a coach, Alonzo Stagg. They decided that together they would create a, a team of, well, um, manly men. If you look over the uh, dining hall today, which is in Bartlett Hall, which is the old gymnasium, you'll see this mural painted of these sort of Roman-esque men, and it says, in pursuit of manly sports or something like that. So that was the kind of sort of attitude that Stagg and Harper were taking towards pursuit of a great football team. They came to be called the Chicago Maroons, and in less than a decade, They became one of the best. In 1899, they were uh, undefeated. They were one of the founding members of the Big Ten Conference. They won two national titles, 10 conference titles, and one of their players was the first recipient of the Heisman Trophy. But this success was not to last. By the 1920s, elite schools around the country decided they were going to become more selective in their admission of students. And Chicago wanted to be on top academically, not just athletically. And so they, too, 
toughen their admission standards. The academic standards of the school kept getting higher and higher until it was basically impossible for people hoping to just go to play football who were riding on their athleticism, essentially, to get into Chicago. And as you might have guessed, this had a huge effect on the quality of athletes at Chicago. Michigan, um, Notre Dame, all of those other big football schools in the Big Ten, their admission standards weren't as high, so they were able to attract talent that you Chicago just couldn't. And so the Chicago Maroons started to lose. In fact, they lost a lot, and people pretty quickly stopped caring about them. Around this time, a new president comes to the university, Robert Hutchins. And Hutchins is sort of like the pastor in that movie Footloose. But whereas that pastor led a crusade against dancing, Hutchins led a crusade against sports. Hutchins once said that football has the same relation to education that bullfighting has to agriculture. And (laughs) yeah, let's just say he was the bookish type. And so with a failing team, higher academic standards, and a president that couldn't stand the game, the University of Chicago ended its once proud football program. The team had gone from the penthouse to the outhouse of college football. And what's really shocking is that the students, well, (laughs) they were okay with the decision. One um, freshman player from the Maroons wrote President Hutchins after they made the decision to get rid of football. And he says, "Um, many of the players felt a distinct personal loss, but we agree with you that the first purpose of an educational institution is to education with football of secondary importance. We, the players, are proud of you and of the University of Chicago. Which makes you wonder why more schools haven't followed Chicago's lead. Why is it that athletics are still such an integral part of university life in America? So today's show, a history of college sports. Stories about the ever-tense relationship between academics and athletics. Guys, if we're going to spend the hour on college sports, there are just a few things we should go over right off the bat. For one, college sports have not been around forever. It seems like it, I know, but it's (laughs) it's true. Organized sports first make an appearance in my period, the 19th century, mainly in rowing, baseball, lacrosse, and football. So Mr. 18th century guy, Peter... I imagine that running around, chasing balls, would have been a pretty vulgar departure from the pristine, ivy-lined college life of your period. Young men studying Plato, studying Latin. Brian, Brian, cut it out. The college students in my century (laughs) were just about as bad as they've ever been. It was more like all-out campus riots. I need to convey how really serious these riots were. They were very serious and very dangerous. This is Helen Horowitz, the author of Campus Life, Undergraduate Cultures from the End of the 18th Century to the Present. In Princeton in 1800, when three students were suspended, uh, fellow students set off a riot in which they shot their pistols, they (laughs) crashed bats against walls and doors, they rolled barrels with stones along the halls of Nassau Hall. An expelled student returned and beat up his tutor, and this led to another riot. In uh, 1820, Yale students bombed one of the residence halls. In 1843, in a Yale riot, a student killed a tutor. And these are young fellows. Um, Many of them came to college from 
rather affluent backgrounds. They had been used to a kind of gentle treatment, and all at once they get into a setting in which they are being told exactly what to do, and when they don't do it, at times they're being suspended. And that's really one of the things that provokes a lot of riots. How did that tension get resolved over the course of the 19th century? That is, you've got uh, these drunken, inattentive, uh, fun-loving adolescents who are going crazy and frequently indulging in violence, and you've got college authorities who are pulling their hair out. Well, yes, but college authorities do begin to change. And uh, a, a pivotal figure in this is a man at Amherst College. Mm-hmm. His name is Edward Hitchcock, Jr. He's yeah. the son of the college president. And he's the one who became, as a first professor of hygiene and physical education, beginning in 1861, he became a transforming force, not only for Amherst, but probably for schools looking at Amherst mm. and seeing that things were actually going better there. What he understood was the animal spirits of college men But he wanted to give those animal spirits better outlets than the town saloon or masturbation. And so he starts a regime of daily gymnastics for all students, and he starts to encourage athletic games. We might think of them as sports. He even put a billiard room in the gym. I urge the necessity of introducing playful exercise, singing college songs, etc., Sometimes, perhaps, this may seem to be boisterous and undignified, but it seems desirable to me that a portion of the animal spirits should be worked off inside the stone walls of the gymnasium under the eye of a college officer rather than out of doors, rendering night hideous. So this person begins to see students from the perspective of a student, in a way, Mm -hmm. Uh, though not all the way there. I I took a look at the course he taught to freshmen, the hygiene course, Uh and it had rules as strict as any of the moralists in terms of issues of sexuality. Right. But what he did do was he began to see that sports, if properly used, could serve to channel those aggressive impulses of college men and uh, give them an outlet. Uh, And then over time, the college found that the fellows who had played sports actually were quite loyal to the college Mm. and wanted to give money to the college and wanted to come back and see the teams play again. So you begin to create a cycle uh, at Amherst that other colleges pick up on. And by the late 19th, early 20th century, many colleges on the East, such as Yale and Princeton, began to hire coaches and bring those games into college life. And that's how we begin to get something of the apparatus we have today. That's Helen Horowitz, professor of history emerita at Smith College. She's the author of Campus Life, Undergraduate Cultures from the End of the 18th Century to the Present. We're marking the onset of March Madness with a look back at the history of college sports. We're asking how big-time athletics became such an important part of campus life. 
Peter, one answer that you hear a lot today is that sports make students well-rounded. Hmm. It's an idea that dates back to the ancient Greeks, but it wasn't until a century ago that it started factoring into college admission decisions. John Thalen is an historian of education at the University of Kentucky. He says that in the early 1900s, colleges started seeing athleticism as a sign of strong character and a sign of leadership skills. Theodore Roosevelt, often in his biographical profiles, would make a point of the fact that he was on the boxing squad uh, at Harvard. But Thalen says by the end of World War II, when higher ed became accessible to a much wider range of students, college admission officers start thinking a little differently about what it means to be well-balanced. I think there was a genuine concern that as academic standards had risen, particularly in metropolitan high school, public high schools, that Harvard could fill its entire class with valedictorians uh, who were you know, science wonks to the neglect of the whole dimensions of a university campus. I mean, a university is a community. But, but this does suggest that moment at which admissions offices begin to think about the well-roundedness of the entire class as a whole, as opposed to admitting a lot of well-rounded individuals. I think what you're pointing to is, how do you achieve balance? Do you achieve it within an individual or... Is it something, it's a composite or collective achievement? The paradox is that the larger the institution, and let's say that most today, most state flagship universities are at least 20,000, some up to maybe 50,000, you actually can find room for athletes with lower academic standards without endangering your overall profile of your student body. Because you have, yeah, the num- you have words, so many people yeah, with so high. Yeah, if you're going to have, let's say, 800 varsity athletes, they can meld into They're a drop campus. They're dropping the bucket, so, right. Yeah, yeah where a- actually today, the biggest controversy on athletics and admissions is in uh, the uh, little three, the Amherst, Wesleyan, and Williams, and in the Ivy League, where varsity athletes, recruited varsity athletes, probably represent anywhere from... 25% to 33% of their entering class. So that the irony is in some of the most selective academic institutions, the tensions over athletic admissions are most intense. John Thalen is a professor at the University of Kentucky's College of Education. You know, Brian, it's interesting that Thalen talks about the effects of athletics on schools in the North because, face it, a lot of people, when they think of college football, think about the South. They think about the SEC and schools like LSU and Auburn and Tennessee, where I proudly went, and the reigning national champions, the Alabama Crimson Tide. And while Alabama has certainly seen some incredible college football, that history has not gone unblemished. Alabama was one of the last schools to integrate its football team. Now, the university first admitted black students in 1963, but it took seven years for a black student to actually play in a football game for Alabama. The story of how this happened is complicated, so I'm going to bring in one of our producers, Eric Mennel, to help tell the story. Hey, guys. Hey, welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, guys. So Alabama has this legendary coach, 
Paul Bear Bryant. And the story goes that in the early and mid-1960s, Bear Bryant led his football team, his all-white football team, to three national championships. A lot of people feel like they were actually snubbed for a fourth. So they're good. Yeah, they're really good. But Bear Bryant sees the ground shifting, and by the end of the decade, the Alabama Crimson Tide just can't compete with teams that are utilizing black talent. He is ready to integrate the football team because he wants to win, but he's not sure that the state of Alabama is ready. So Bryant, as the story goes, goes to the head coach of the USC Trojans, that's USC is in Southern California, and asks him if his team will come to Tuscaloosa in 1970 to play the first integrated game at Alabama. Yeah, and the story goes that this is all part of Bryant's calculation. To this point, no black player has ever played in Tuscaloosa, not even for a visiting team. But Bryant knows about one player at USC, one player who is just going to stomp all over Alabama, Sam Bam Cunningham. Sam Bam Cunningham? Yeah, yeah. Sam Cunningham is a running back, and he's an African-American. Bryant wants to show his fans that black players can help them win games. So on September 12th, 1970, USC comes to Tuscaloosa, and Sam Bam Cunningham, well, he puts on a show. He was just having a field day. That's Andrew Purnell. He graduated from the University of Alabama just a couple of months before the Sam Cunningham game. And, and looking back on the footage of the game, it's just so blatantly obvious how much stronger Cunningham is than the Alabama defense. I mean, he is pounding through the linemen. Running at will. And he does one of those moves where you put your hand on the other guy's face and just sort of push him away. Nobody could catch him or stop him. And so Sam the Bam Cunningham, uh, the first black player to play in Alabama, runs for 135 yards and two touchdowns, leading the Trojans over the Crimson Tide. But what's really amazing is what happens after the game. Bear Bryant walks over to the USC locker room and asks Cunningham to come with him. He brings Cunningham back to the Alabama locker room, stands him up in front of the Alabama players, and says, gentlemen, this is what a football player looks like. And then then the next year, Alabama offers its first football scholarship to an African-American. And this is the story that makes it into almost all of the documentaries about integrating college football at Alabama. Sam Cunningham actually co-wrote a book about this game called Turning the Tide, the Game that Changed the South. One of the assistant coaches at Alabama at the time said that Sam Cunningham did more to integrate Alabama in 60 minutes than Martin Luther King did in 20 years. It's a pretty amazing story. Well, yeah. But there's a little problem, guys. You want to tell him, Eric? Uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, The problem is that this idea that Sam Cunningham came from California and broke the color barrier in Alabama football, well, it's not really true. So the story is that Sam Cunningham is the one who helped integrate Alabama in 1970. But remember Andrew Purnell, the Alabama graduate from earlier? He's an African-American and, well... It was 67 through part of 68, and I played football at the University of Alabama. Spring practice for the Crimson Tide of Alabama. And everything seems to be just like any previous year, but it's not. Head coach Bear Bryant spurs on his Southeastern Conference champs, and among the players, pass receiver Andrew Purnell, one of three Negroes on the squad. I was on the intramural football team, and we had a game over by the practice field where the Tide practiced. And they had uh, these privacy covers over the fence, 
to keep people from looking in. But some of my friends who were on the team, the um, intramural team, we went over and we looked through the gaps in the in the privacy covers. And after a while of looking, I said, I can do that. I think I said it out loud. And so Andrew Purnell decides to walk on for the University of Alabama football team, along with four other African-Americans. And those other guys were Doc Roan. He was a a guard from Montgomery, I think it was. Melvin Leverett. He played, he was a fullback. Arthur Dunning. He was a running back. And Jerome Tucker. He was a halfback. And Andrew Purnell, he was a 5'8", 150-pound wide receiver. Now, you have to understand, none of these guys were all Americans. They were walk-ons. They played some high school ball, but they weren't standouts. Now, most mediocre players just have to prove themselves as athletes. But these five men had to prove themselves as people. The day we went over, we walked into the locker room, and we know that locker rooms are very noisy, a bunch of guys, football players especially. And it was noisy until we walked in that morning, and nobody said a word. And we began practice soon after that. What were your interactions with the players like? The players were distant, and you know it's kind of like I didn't did not exist. There was no camaraderie for the most part as being a, a member of the team. There was one guy in particular. I remember he came to me in private, and he said, "So y'all just as good as we are." If my daddy knew I said that, he'd kill me. So some of the white players have actually said uh, that Bear Bryant told them they were to treat their black teammates the same way they would treat their white teammates. So Bryant had pretty firm control over the locker room. Uh, But the thing he didn't have control over was the rest of the state of Alabama. And just a warning, this next little bit uh, has some pretty intense language. So if that bothers you, you may just want to turn down your radio for a minute. That year, it was 67, I got four hate letters. Um, I called them fan fan mail at the time, it said, Dear nigger, haul your black ass north. Color stars not wanted at Alabama. Did you ever get a chance to play in a game? There was once I got all excited to call my parents and told them I might get a chance to play. I think we were going to play South Carolina that week. Coaches came to me. They were asking me about my shoe size and they asked me about my grades. They were, they were fine. So, And that just died down. And that was, that was very disappointing. I mean, that was one of the most disappointing moments I, I thought I had. It was less than a year before the other four guys left the team. It had been a year and a half of practices for Andrew when he had a meeting with one of his coaches. Assistant head coach Sam Bailey called me into his office one day, and he said that the university had found out, like they discovered, that I was on an academic scholarship. So basically, um, every football team in the Southeastern Conference had a quota on the number of scholarship players they could have on the roster. Andrew was receiving a scholarship from the local church, so technically this put Alabama over its limit. So he gave me a a choice. He said I could um, stay on the team, but I would have to give up the scholarship. Andrew says his family only made between $3,400 and $3,800 a year, so it wasn't much of a choice. He left the team. Some of the players that came after me were invited to come, and they were treated as guests. I was not. I was treated as an intruder, uninvited guest. So that made all the difference. And so, three years later, 
Sam Bam Cunningham comes to town, while Andrew Purnell and his four black teammates become a footnote in the Alabama legacy. Guys, I've just got to ask, if that's the case, how did the Sam Bam Cunningham story become the only one that we know today? You know, I had the same question, Brian. So I went ahead and asked David Matthews. Now, he's now the president of the Kettering Foundation. But in 1969, and for most of the 70s, he was president of the University of Alabama. Paul Bryant was a master at public relations and actually created this myth, I think, to give him some defenses against the people who were, in those days, very outspoken in their opposition to integration. And so he wanted to give the Alabama folks uh, something they could say that would just take that issue off the board. So that was, this is in many ways, uh, he was protecting against the right flank uh, exactly. in a way that uh, he see this as a way of sort of giving white Alabamians a chance to kind of uh, accept this without suggesting that they'd knuckled under to this outside agitator yeah. Martin Luther King. Yeah, yeah. Sam Cunningham gave Paul Bryant a little bit of cover so a year later he could bring his own black players onto the field. Yeah, but, but what really gets me is the fact that 40 years later, this Sam Cunningham story is still the one that people are telling. And why do you think that is, Eric? Well, in the legacy of Alabama football, Andrew Purnell is he's really just small potatoes. But Bear Bryant? You have to understand football in the South, football at the University of Alabama. Bear Bryant was like a god. He could have been governor if he had wanted to. And they still you know, hold him in, in such high esteem. There are so many things at the university named after him. You know, Bear Bryant is a legend. He is perceived at Alabama the, the way Joe Paterno was perceived at Penn State for so long. But when you start to look at him through the lens of Andrew Purnell's story, you start to realize that although Bryant treated the African-American walk-ons with tremendous respect, it still took him eight years after the student body integrated to put a black football player in an actual game. He, he was a great football coach. Could have been a great man. He had the power to do much more than what he did if he had spoken out. And that Bear Bryant, the one who could have acted but didn't, that's just not the way we want to remember our heroes. Eric Mennel is a Backstory producer. Thanks a lot, Eric. Yeah, you're welcome, guys. So as it turns out, Andrew Pinnell went 40 years without telling anybody that he played for Alabama. And there's an amazing story about how his story was discovered. And you can hear that on our website, backstoryradio.org. Annie Ungrady is a student at the University of Virginia in our hometown of Charlottesville. She recently learned about an interesting convergence between world history and a college athletics facility very close to home. Here's Annie. FDR and his wife Eleanor were on the train down to Charlottesville to make his commencement speech to the graduates of the 1940 class from the University of Virginia. and. He had just heard on the train that Italy had joined the war on the Axis side, um, fighting with, with Germany against France. So he, he was on the train, and he was really kind of upset and kind of torn about what to do because his, 
his wife Eleanor actually really encouraged him to speak his mind and to be frank uh, with the with the university graduates. June 10, 1940, Charlottesville, Virginia. The President of the United States addresses the graduating class of the University of Virginia, which includes his son, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Jr. Uh, he starts off his speech by talking about how, you know, there have been only three times in, in the United States history when, when the young people have really felt like they were living for our country, um, and not necessarily for themselves and not necessarily for their jobs, but they were actually living for their freedom, for their rights, and that would be when they were trying to defeat the British way back at the start of our country. Uh, back in the Civil War, and at this point right now. Uh, he really wanted to emphasize, he wanted to bring back that feeling of, of patriotism uh, to, to America. So, so then, following, following that explanation, he, he did announce that Italy had joined the war on the side of Germany. The decision of the Italian government to engage in the hostilities now raging in Europe. And, you know, FDR was pretty upset about that because he had been working really hard to kind of formulate relations with, with Italy and trying to kind of talk to them and, and, and kind of make a relationship. And, you know, then he goes, you know, Mussolini goes and he joins Germany's side. So FDR feels pretty betrayed. So the title of the speech comes from this particular line. On this 10th day of June, 1940. FDR said... The hand, the hand that held, that the, held dagger the dagger has struck it, has struck it into, the back into the back of his neighbor. Of its neighbor. Once, I, once I read that, FDR did the speech in Memorial Gymnasium. I just thought it was so crazy. It's not very new. It's not very um, technologically savvy. It's almost a little dirty, but it's, it has the character that makes people just kind of want to come back. You know, I have sat in Mem Gym and listened to people speak. I have played basketball in Mem Gym. I... Um, you know, did a, did, a, did a core training course in Mem Gym and, you know, maybe FDR stood literally right above me on the same floor. That's just a bizarre feeling. It's like so weird to think about. <laughs> That's Annie Ungrady, a student at the University of Virginia. If you have an idea for a History Happened Here dispatch along the lines of the one we just heard, well, let us know. Our email address is backstory at virginia.edu. You'll find details about the kinds of stories we're looking for at backstoryradio.org slash postcards. Today on our show, college sports, how they came to be and why they've gotten so big. And we've come to that time when each week we take some questions from our listeners. We've got Maisie on the line from Lexington, Virginia. Maisie, welcome to Backstory. Thank you. We're talking about college sports. I am um, originally from Charlottesville, Virginia, and I played lacrosse in college at Hofstra oh, University. Right. And so my question is, it's a kind of a two-pronged question. And first, I'm just wondering, 
when historically and did women's collegiate sports become um, a major thing mm. and how that kind of lines up with Title IX. Yeah. And then um, what the impact of Title IX is today. Uh, it's so it's so important. I think, you know, we need to take a running start, so to speak, uh, at it uh, and answer the first part of Macy's questions about where did women's athletics in college come from. And as soon as you have women in college, you start having mm-hmm. women athletics. Uh, that you find that uh, back in the 1890s, I remember fi- coming across a letter from a young woman just mortified that she had to dress out for gym. And, you know, mm-hmm. th- of course, in the 1890s, it looks like the swimsuits they had back then, you know, <laughs> it was all voluminous yeah. and everything. But as soon as you start bringing young women together uh, in the collegiate environment, they started playing sports against one another. And right? physical education was absolutely central to co-education. Because uh, for one thing, it was at first considered maybe a dangerous place for women to be because they were neurasthenic, they were hysterical, and uh, so how could they adapt to the challenges of college life? And this proving that women were physically able was part of the agenda of the 19th century expansion of co-education. And that that higher education wasn't ruining their health and unfitting them for motherhood. That's exactly right. You know, we always invoke Title IX, but I'm going to ask my 20th century colleague to actually tell us where did Title IX come from? It's Title IX of what, Brian? What we call Title IX was really a series of amendments passed in 1972 to the Higher Education Act of 1965. And what Title IX or those 1972 amendments did was make it illegal to discriminate on the basis of sex at any institution of higher education that was receiving funding from the federal government. And by 1972, that was just about every institution. That's right. And you know, it doesn't say in college sports. You know, so Title right. IX applies to everything, right? right? Uh, but college sports quickly became sort of a flashpoint on this because the built-in inequities of funding and support and scholarships and facilities yeah, yeah. and everything for men's sports were so obviously out of kilter with those for women's sports, that institutions had to really scramble to create new opportunities for women. I want to drill into a smaller aspect. There are so many opportunities that came to women administrators and coaches along with the rise of women's sports. So I have a question for you, and this has truly bugged me for a long time. Why are there men that are head coaches of women's varsity teams. But as far as I know, no women that are head coaches of um, men's teams. Do you know of any reasons why a smart woman coach shouldn't be coaching the men's team? Absolutely not. I I think of that um, movie with Goldie Hawn and she's the football coach. It's it's a movie because it's so unusual. Yeah, right. it's novelty. You know, it never happened. Yeah, yeah. It's a novelty, exactly. And I think just traditionally, we think as a society that women will have a, a more difficult time adapting to the men's type of thinking, like on-field thinking, whereas the, the male approach of just straightforwardness can work with women. Yeah, we got sensitive men, but we have uh, we don't have insensitive women. That's the problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, it's, that, a, it's a one-way street. You know that you know that sports use consultants a lot, and certainly you could hire a man to teach those women to spit. <laughs> Thanks for calling us. Thank you all. Right. Bye bye. Bye bye.
We have yet another call, my dear friends. It's from Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and it's Josh. Josh, welcome to Backstory. Hi. Sports, college, what's up? Um, I have a somewhat uh, provocative question. Whoa, okay, Um, bring it on. And it stems from the piece in The Atlantic by civil rights historian Taylor Branch uh, called The Shame of College Sports, uh, in which, in addition to a a great deal of fine-grained analysis uh, about the NCAA, an organization that he calls uh, the cartel, um, he deploys uh, a rather provocative uh, analogy to slavery and the plantation. So this is Branch's language. Uh, Slavery analogies should be used carefully. College athletes are not slaves, yet to survey the scene, corporations and universities enriching themselves on the backs of uncompensated young men whose status as student-athletes deprives them of the right to due process guaranteed by the Constitution is to catch an unmistakable whiff of the plantation. So my question is really uh, just uh, what do you make of making such analogies and how uh, are we to make them most effectively? Josh, great question. And by the way, uh, listeners, you can get that article linked through our website, backstoryradio.org. Uh, guys, what do you make of the analogy that, uh, that Josh has brought to our attention here? That is the athlete equals slave. Well, you know, uh, this is Ed, the 19th century guy who actually has written some about slavery and thought about origins of segregation and stuff. And, you know, I would say, first of all, if there were not such a um, preponderance of highly visible and skilled young black men who were student athletes, the analogy would not come to mind. I do think it's the racialization of it is what gives any kind of credence at all to the slavery metaphor. And it, it ties into to earlier use of black people as spectacle in, in minstrelsy and in, in, in entertainment more broadly. So or, or I think that there's something... boxing matches. Sure. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so that there is something to the racial aspect of it, but calling it slavery when, in fact, um, it is not, <laughs> I think trivializes both sides of it. You know, so you can have it be an exploitative relationship, you can have it be asymmetrical, you can have it be the display of black bodies for uh, white entertainment. All those things are just as powerful without using the S word. But, but to push back... Uh, I don't think it's particularly inapt, right? Uh, clearly, uh, if, if one is going to be too reductive, it's, it's not going to be useful. But Branch is calling attention in particular uh, to the risk that these men assume, but also to the labor rights that they lack, that they don't uh, have any kind of collective bargaining, that as, as far as the present rules go, they're not allowed to even bargain for their own deals uh, at their universities, so they all are officially on one-year scholarships. Yeah, Josh. Meaning that, yeah. This is, Brian, from the 20th century, where ostensibly slavery was eradicated. And 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 I'll I'll defend Branch by noting he called it a whiff. Uh, He was very, very aware that it was not an exact analogy. And I'll answer your question, your meta question, by simply saying that sometimes metaphors, analogies that are not precise do get us to the heart of the matter. And uh, I absolutely agree that this is not slavery. But if slavery is his way of having us look carefully at this current system of labor, then then I think he's done us all a favor. Yeah. uh, And I agree with that, Brian. 
I think what Branch is really talking about, he's using this sensational idea and carefully, uh, provocatively, but he's really talking about restraint of trade, and that is the antitrust exemption that the NCAA has created a kingdom for itself. It's, a, it, it's not responsible in ways that we think it should be uh, to universities themselves, to the athletes who are playing the games. And I think uh, we shouldn't obsess on the characterization of the athletes as slaves. It's really the plantation we're talking about to extend the metaphor and should there be such plantations and should they dominate our public life in the way they do? I guess I need to get in a final word on this. Um, the reason I think that I brought a little against the slavery thing is it in some ways avoids our own responsibility with our own very modern kinds of right. laws and systems of exploitation and acts as if exploitation is not something we're actively creating new forms. We solved that, we <laughs> yeah. solved that problem. That, that would be true. Yeah, that would yeah be so true. that's the thing is we didn't inherit this from the 19th century. This is something we have made yep, ourselves this is us. and we have a responsibility for it ourselves. So I think this is in, in the sort of meta question that we agree yeah. that this is meaningful, and, but we need to think about what's the best language, the best meta language to discuss it in. And I'd say it'd be one that embraces our own responsibility for it. Yeah, I tend to have a similar reservation about these kind of analogies. Not only does it wash away our own responsibility, but it, uh, it implies a kind of historical inevitability about things yeah, that are yeah, actually yeah. quite contingent. Josh, you've really stirred it up. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Thanks a lot, guys. Josh. I love the show. Yeah, bye-bye. Ed, Peter, we've spent the hour talking about why big-time college sports would be on a campus in the first place, but I think we all know what the real reason is, Ed. I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot. Sure you do. But shouldn't we be honest with our listeners and let them know that you have a special interest in this topic? Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, I think people who listen all the way to the credits at the end of the show know that I'm president of the University of Richmond. And people who are fans of uh, American college athletics know that we are the spiders, the only spiders in the world for some reason. Uh, <laughs> and you have a web presence? Oh. Uh, well, I would say the name of our uh, mascot is Webster. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we've had, um, you know, we were national football champions in 2008 at the second level Division One and uh, Sweet 16 in basketball. Yeah. So um, I have to admit that I have spent some time thinking about college sports. And it turns out that a lot of the easy uh, stereotypes about this just aren't true. So let's begin with the first one about does it make a lot of money? Uh, studies have shown, one of my favorite uh, sayings, that only a very few schools actually make money off athletics. Really? Yeah. Uh, so it turns out that just maybe a couple dozen of programs at the biggest football schools with the biggest TV contracts are actually able to translate that into being in the black. So that's not true. What else do you got? Well, I heard, for instance, that, you know, it's publicity and it kind of drives up mm -hmm. all kinds of applications and that makes you look better on the ratings. Well, you know, uh, our applications have been going up, but uh, studies have shown that there's really remarkably little correlation between athletic success and any kind of long-term uh, increase in applications or, for that matter, very little long-term impact on fundraising. So it turns out that another sort of defense of college athletics 
as well as the attack on it, really is just not really founded in empirical evidence. Ed, you've done a remarkable job of dismissing the material benefits mm -hmm. that might accrue from college athletics, money, uh, increase in applications and ratings. So that just leaves us with the stuff we love the most, those intangibles about history. Hey, Brian, I got one for you. It yeah. goes back to my period. And that's the idea that any corporate institution like a university, its chief imperative is to survive and thrive through the generations, through time. And the brand that a football program brings to a school is part of shaping an identity, a corporate identity that uh, is going to serve the purposes of perpetuating the institution. Wow. I think that's really good. You know, what you find is that people remember, ah, the team of 68, yeah, or the, you yeah, know, exactly. and it, it's an immediate guaranteed tradition, you know, and yeah. there's a, a one lost record and it all ties in. So it's kind of instant history in a way, and it has the value of that. Eddie, you know, what I, do you see from your perspective? You know, I, I've come to know quite a few student athletes since I've been president and often meet them at seven o'clock in the morning where the only other people on campus and they've already been in the pool for an hour and a half or already been lifting weights and they're on their way to the very earliest classes so that they can get back to practice in the afternoon. And I see them succeeding to a remarkable extent in the classroom. So ironically, the very first ideas that we talked about in this show way back in the late 19th century still exist that this, for the students who participate I do believe college athletics is one of the defining parts of their college experience. And I've got the corollary to those uh, series of individual benefits, and that's something that you guys know we've searched for through American history for all of American history, and that's community. Uh, because yeah. in this very specialized age we live in, as we take minors and subminers. Mm -hmm. We have specialties and subspecialties. Boy, we have so many parts of the university, the research laboratories, the humanities. What is it that brings all of the university together? It's, there, there really aren't that many things. And frankly, I think college athletics has the capacity to do that. Well, it makes the institution real not just to participants, but to fans. It's the connection that it affords and it creates community. I think you're, you're right, Brian. Yeah, and I'm just going to add one more dimension, guys. It does seem that universities exist as part of a larger community. Sometimes that's regional, sometimes that's quite local. And it does seem to me that college athletics, especially the big state school college athletics, is, is, is a way to make that university experience, or at least a part of it, accessible to all the members of that larger community. You might even find that in, in Richmond, Ed. I, I don't know. Yeah, it is a, a source of civic identity, but there's nothing quite like growing up in Tennessee, where if you had no connection at all to the University of Tennessee, you were still a Vol. Yeah. You still, you, you were yeah. proud of the orange. And, you know, having the name of your state out there kicking the butt of some other state uh, yeah. in the West or the North was deeply satisfying. And I think what we've seen over the course of the show today is that there are reasons that this remains such an important part of American life. It's not just some like irrational artifact out there. Yeah. And as always, history is a good way to figure out why in the world we have this stuff.
Guys, I'm sorry to say this, but our play clock is down oh, to zero. Oh. We are out of time. Oh, boo, boo. But you can take this show into overtime on our website, backstoryradio.org. We have a ton of resources we pulled together on college sports and an ongoing discussion between our staff and you, the Backstory audience. We want to know what you think. Do sports belong in the university, or is it time to nix them all together? Let us know at BackstoryRadio.org. Thanks for listening, and don't be a stranger. Today's episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Windham, Tony Field, Eric Mennel, Anna Pinkert, and Jess Angabretson. We had help from Allison Quantz and Nell Beschenstein. Our staff includes David Stenhouse, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Anjali Bishash, Sequoia Carrillo, Korean Thomas, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. Special thanks today to Robin Lester, whose book Stag University was helpful in telling the University of Chicago's story at the top of the show. And thanks to John David Briley, author of Career in Crisis, Paul Bear Bryant, and the 1971 season of Change. And as always, thanks to the Johns Hopkins Studios in Baltimore. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.